This concept's with pivot. You understand just how we living. This for me is like rap religion. Open on beat, cause we got this guy. When it come to this, y'all, I can get it hype. When it come to this, y'all, calm has risen. How you living, huh? Yo, how you living, pivot? Ah, wow. Malcolm McDowell. Even saying the name. Uh, listen, what you're about to see is real. Okay. Um, it was confrontational. Uh, we took the gloves off. And uh, it, it's something that needed to happen. Okay. Uh, he played Terrence McEwick on Entourage. He, he was Ari Gold's foe. And we went head to head, and it was really some great television that I was lucky to be a part of. Um, but this was not staged. Uh, this was a long time coming for me, and I confronted it. And you know what? Just let's get into it, because I can't believe it happened. Here we go. We're here with the great and powerful Malcolm McDowell, and. Uh, I I rapped last night. You rapped tonight on our movie. Hopefully. Hopefully. We're in New Orleans. Yeah. The weather is a little eccentric. Beautiful town, though. Let's let's fast forward, if you don't mind, to Hmm. how we ultimately met doing Entourage. And... Your own nemesis. That's right. What a beautiful uh, show that was. But you didn't know what it would... You didn't know what it was at first. No, no. Did it say this? No, no, because my agent called me and said, well, had an inquiry about this thing called Entourage. I said, what's it about? And he goes, well, it's about, you know, these young guys in Hollywood. And I went, oh, that sounds fucking awful. <laughs> I went, no, I don't want to do that. I, I've never seen anything about Hollywood that's any good at all. Pass, ah. pass on that. So that evening, I was with my son, who's a young director, and I said, yeah, I know there was something in today, I think uh, called Entourage. And he went, what? Entourage? They offered you Entourage? I went, yeah, I think so. Yeah, but I passed. He went, dad, do you know it? It's an incredible show. I went, what? He goes, no, 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 I'm serious. Call your agent. So the next day I said, oh, hi, Michael. Um, you know that Entourage thing? Um, did you call him and say, I'm pa-? he goes, no. I was waiting for you to call. Uh, so it never got to uh, Doug, I don't think. Yeah. And they used to call me when we were, whenever we, we went out for dinner. We did. And because the, the reason that particular dinner happened was because they would call me when we were trying to lure in yeah. a big oh, catch. Oh, oh, yeah. And for some reason, I was the bait. I don't know why. I don't know why. Uh, they, well, maybe no, because I, I, I knew how to speak to other thespians, maybe possibly, yeah, and relate but, to know, them. But I remember also, you. Well, you but we I met misunderstood before you. that. We met before that. Yes, we did. We did. So I knew you, and um, also I knew your work because you were the lead-in. Oh no, we were the lead-in show, or you? I can't remember now. That's right. You did a show on ABC. Yes. What was it called? It was called My Favorite Paycheck. No, it was called um, exactly. Cupid. What, Listen, was it? what was it, Cupid? Yes. Oh, Jesus. Listen, we, Sorry we, to bring that up. No, no. We, but but, but you, <laughs> did, didn't we lead in with Fantasy Island and then you, 
We did. Well, I have to apologize now because we didn't, we didn't bring anybody with us. Well, that's the sound of people switching to other podcasts. Let me get back to Entourage, <laughs> if you don't mind. So we're, because I'm having a moment here with you right now where I have to admit that I have misunderstood you from, from the first day I met you. Now, why is that? Because, and I, first of all, we're from different countries, and your national pastime growing up is taking the piss. Yeah. Ours isn't necessarily, as you know, from being here. Well, um, Cusack's good at it, and so's Paul Hip. You're in that little... I, I, yeah, indeed. But right from the jump, I was confused by you. Ah, well... You know what I mean? So how are we feeling about it now? I, I, you were, I'm gonna navigate this, this, it's fascinating. (laughs) Because, Because, during Entourage, our characters were at odds, and there was there was palpable tension, and we were going after each other. Yes, and but in a beautiful way. And by the way, don't ever demean that because those scenes are classics. Well, yes, they were, and 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 still I still are. They it, they rerun the damn things, don't they, all the time? All the time. And it's funny, I hadn't seen it since we did it, and before we did this, I I went back and looked at our stuff. I was kind of blown away by it, and, and very proud. But what I was getting to is that, mm-hmm. you know, your personality, mm-hmm. I misunderstood you. I thought you were a complete and utter asshole. <laughs> and, I, and I hated you. Yeah. I hated you. And I, and I used it. Okay. Well, I, I just got to tell you, I fucking hated you. Yeah. And, <laughs> and do you remember at one point, and what happened was I, loved, I would just, I, would I just, loved just sticking the knife. I would just the sit there and go thing. like, <laughs> I would just hold on to it and just be like, this motherfucker. And then I would hold on to it until they yelled action, and then yeah. I would just fucking let loose on you. So you know what? <laughs> you should fucking thank me. Thank you. Thank you for being my muse. Yeah, I think I helped your performance enormously. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> I, and, and I knew I that, mean, and but, I loved it. See, I but got you kept going. Help. But you kept going. I, I got being... such delight on fucking with you. I have to say. All right, we're now being totally honest. I couldn't stand you either. You were an arrogant son of a bitch. But you seem to have eaten a little humble pie along the way, and now you're uh, you're a pretty nice guy. You're uh... well. What's interesting is. F- from the first time we met and and we didn't know each other, you're, you know, the first thing you said to us on Entourage, well, you don't have any fucking money. You know what I mean? Yeah, they didn't pay. The, no, yeah. I know, but I'm thinking, oh, that's brash. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, why? I mean, uh, <laughs> if you want to get fucking stars to come in and do it, you should at least pay them. Absolutely, absolutely. And so here I am being used. I'm not a producer on the show. Well, then... Don't come to the fucking dinners. I didn't want to come. They're saying, please try to get Malcolm to do it. I was like, okay, I'll try to get Malcolm to do this. I want him to do it as so well. So the first thing I go to you is, well, where's the fucking money? And I'm going, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not a producer. <laughs> you know what I mean? So this is your brash sense of humor, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you're, you're a playful guy who just always wants to take the piss. But when you say things like, you're an arrogant prick, to mm-hmm. me, mm. we didn't even know each other. No, but you, ha- but, but you said the same thing. You couldn't loathe me. And it's because um, 
you know, it was based on really the characters we were playing. So, you know, um, that's what it was based on. And um, I was playful with that because, of course, I knew it and I thought I'd have a bit of fun with it. And uh, so that's why, you know, um, it was so easy to do all this. And <clears throat> Um, but but I have to say, the scene of the uh, firing in the office and the writing of the zero on the... Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the classic television scenes of that period. It's, yeah. it's great. And, you know, I'll say this to your face now, as if everybody hasn't, but, you know, they got the right guy to play the part because you were iconic in it, and it's one of the great... One of the great heavies, you know, of television. Up there with Louis in Taxi. And that's an enormous compliment. Thank you. Know? Well, you, you know, as I was watching it, your energy balanced mine so perfectly that they couldn't have found a better person. And ironically... But, but you, were, you were intimidated as a person. But you shouldn't have been. You shouldn't have been intimidated as a person. Because as an actor, okay, in the scene... But as a person, you know, you've got to let that go a little bit, I think. And this may be a good thing for the future. Well, I hear what you're saying. I, I, and again, I go back to the cultural thing. No, you, it's not cultural. It's not cultural. It really isn't. Because it's, listen, you know, you, you have a certain way of working, which is very uh, opposite to mine, you know. <clears throat> You're very uh, jazzed. You're very uh, tight, tightly wound, which which is great. Now I, I I love what you do. By the way, I'm a fan of your work. Your work's great. Your work on this movie, very interesting. I was watching you, and I thought, fuck, that's one way I would not approach the part. But hey, works for him, and that's all that matters, you know. And and um, you know, um, that's just not the way I was. Uh, you know, brought up to do it, I'm, you know, from the theater from London, mm -hmm. where um, most of one's, um, you know, experience came from the theater. There was no movies, really. There was no movie business like in Hollywood. You know, it was much, much smaller. So if you were an actor in England, you were a theater actor, basically. I've been on the stage since I was eight years old. Yeah, And I so I, I've had nothing but stage work my entire life. So again, we probably had very similar paths, yes, probably. and yet you think mine is so totally different. It's just the way you approach the part, you know, on film anyway, and I presume it's the same, you know, in the theater. I mean, why would it be any different? As slight changes here and there, but the, the main thrust of your attack on a part, I would presume, is the same. I haven't done a play with you, so I don't, don't know, but... I would, um, I'm only going from my own experience, it's the same. But you just adjust it for the medium. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, it's, but it's the same, you know, the same technique, if you like. Well, the technique varies depending on the role in the scene. And, of course, and, you all right. know, yeah. And no matter where you're coming from, if you're not totally present in the scene and improvisational, even within whatever you're bringing, Mm. then, you know, what's the point? I was playing a character in Ari Gold that was very specifically based on Ari Emanuel, who was my agent. 
and he had a very specific way of doing it. By the way, a a postscript to that is that I met him um, at a a Michael Moore's uh, film festival in um, up in Michigan, and we were on a panel or something together, and they said, "Oh, this is the real Ari, Ari." You know, I was like. So I just stood up and went, you're fired. We had a good laugh. Don't go anywhere. How You Live in J-Pivot will be right back after we pay some bills. Well, whatever you did with that, uh, listen, um, you know, that was uh, an extraordinary piece of writing. Yes. Um, As you know, look at this. it had to be groundbreaking. It had to be, you know, Doug Ellen is a big part of this story. Absolutely. And also the other guys, because in a way, and I put them all, you know, the other guys were, you can, you know, do this to, that they were very important for your performance, ultimately. They were, they were perfect for the roles. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything about it was, you know, it was, um, but what's what's interesting is that that people don't know is Doug Allen wrote this brilliant script, mm-hmm. and he really wanted us to stick to it, and it was brilliant. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yet it was our job to make it all feel totally improvisational. Well, you did that beautifully. Um, um, I don't know whether I did. I didn't really have that much to do compared to you, but you know what I had was really, really. Fantastic! It was a great part. It was. It was, a, and you played it perfect. There, no one could have done it better. Except, I will say this, um, and don't be offended. Doug Allen initially was in love with the idea of Terrence Stamp, <laughs> and that's why. Well, Terry's lovely. You know. Yes, and that's why he called the, the character Terrence. But I love that. Yeah. That's great. So, hey, listen, you weren't the first for Ari either. Probably not. I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> That's, but I mean. But that's the way it is. That's the way it is. You have to be ready when your number gets called. Exactly that. Um, And it's funny you say, you know, you're talking about our methods and um, the only way, ironically, that I could play that role like that was to rehearse it like a play. Because the reality was, if I wasn't, you know, I had to rehearse and run those lines because by the time we got to set, if I wasn't totally entrenched and ready to play with you within that, the lines were the Bible. Being Jewish, it was like my, my, it was like my bar mitzvah, like my Torah portion. You can't stray from that. Right. But if I wasn't locked into those lines and owning them to the point where there's no doubt and I could be totally present with you. So I had to rehearse it like a play so that we weren't doing opening night. We were two months into the play by the time we hit the ground running. So, yeah, well, I know you have some complex speeches. Yeah. And, and I, I did, I, I remember, I don't remember much about it, but I remember thinking, fucking hell, you know, he did that amazingly well because it was a lot and you spit it out. It was a real Jimmy Cagney. You yeah. Know? And I remember at one point, they, I don't know if you remember this, they gave you the wrong scene. Do you remember this? Thing? Gave me it? Yes, I don't know if you remember this. Vaguely, and I didn't know the scene. You, know, you I'm, didn't know the scene. I went, wait a minute, I don't know this. No, but this was crazy. This is the craziest thing yeah. I've ever had on set in my life. You didn't know the scene, and they were set up for my coverage, and they go, Jeremy, here's the deal. 
we're lit, we have no time. Malcolm doesn't know, he, we just hand this to him, he doesn't know the scene, but you gotta play it with him. So you <laughs> got up there and you just laid into me with all the intention of the scene, but with just gibberish. Right. And so I was responding to yeah. your gibberish. And you know, it was and like- you, And you still- I had to. Thought I was an asshole? <laughs> um, you, you have to understand, you, for instance, when we were in Cannes, I'll never forget it. Um, you were there probably promoting something or- Oh or, yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting there- We were just laughing. Yeah, that, I, I know, that was pretty naughty, really. I was sitting there, I'll never forget, I'm waiting for my call and the sun's coming up and I'm in Cannes. I'm like, you fucking asshole. And I look over and, I'm, and you drive away into the sunset. And I was like, that motherfucker, <laughs> that motherfucker. So you continued to, to play the part. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. It's almost like you were playing uh, maybe some sort of a practical joke that just didn't end. Yeah, well, here I am. We haven't ended yet. <laughs> we're still doing it. Well, you know, and I wonder, I guess, because I have so many people that I love from the UK. And I remember because I've been doing stand-up for a while. And a couple of them came to see me and I looked and they were so nervous in the audience. And I went and did my thing and had a great time. And afterwards, they looked so relieved and they said, wow, that was great, you were so funny. I was like, you didn't think I was gonna be funny? And they're like, no. And my point is... Yeah, what is your point? My point is this, that the Brits, their national pastime is taking the piss and they love banter. It's, and, and, it's the humor. And yeah. It is. Yeah. And I think some Americans, we, you know, we're perceived as being too earnest. Yeah, there's a sense of irony, which the, the Brits have which um, it doesn't exist much in America. There's not much to be ironic about here. I mean, it's, you know, America, or, you know, it's the old good old US of A. <clears throat> it's not quite what it was in the 70s, but it's still a pretty great country, you it, know. And absolutely. Exactly. Right. And so the sense of irony, don't forget, you, on a small island that is, was a, a world power up until basically the Second World War. And, you know, if you're going into all this, you know, the British sort of had a nervous breakdown, you know. I mean, they fought uh, alone against Hitler for 18 months or two years before America came in on the war. And only when they were attacked, you know, by the Japanese. So that um, there is all this sort of, strange British-American, um, you know, friendship thing. <clears throat> and it goes back, you know, um, so that I'm saying that the sort of British had, I, I mean, I think a sort of um, nervous breakdown because, you know, we were still under rations in the 50s. I mean, you couldn't go and buy anything you wanted. You had, it had to come out of a ration book and you were only allowed so much, you know. So it was a strange, um, it's a strange thing about the British actually um, in terms of their relationship with America. Um, anyway, very few people have been doing it as long as you. Um, is, there, is there a difference that you see in, in the business and in Hollywood from 
you've done it for now all these decades, you know, and is there- 60 years. Of course, you know, I mean, it's changed enormously since you started, you know, and you're way younger than me, but, um, you know, acting still acting. Good writing is still good writing. And, you know, we are bound by the script. I don't care what you say, if it's not in the script or the piece of material, yeah, but it's interesting because people, you know, their careers have pendulums that go back and forth, but mm -hmm. you've somehow worked Well, no, you know, steadily. I've had lean times, and, you know, all careers, and you'll find this, of, of course. We, I don't care who you are, Olivier. I mean, Jesus, you know, probably one of the greatest actors that ever lived. You know, it's debatable, but um, I, Tony would agree with that, Hopkins, and he's probably the finest actor alive today. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, of course it changed greatly, like, you know, the world has changed and, um, the materials change. I, 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 it's really weird, but, um, I'm getting more work offered now than I was in my twenties. Why do you think that is? I really don't know. I, I, I well, I think the competition has died off. You're the last man standing? I mean, it's got to be something like that. Because um, I really don't understand, right. you know, why suddenly, you know, there's huge films and this and that. I mean, you know, it's very nice. I mean. Do you think that it, you know, you've lived in Ohio for 30, 40 years. And um, is there something to having your life laying low, being under the radar? And is there something Jeremy, to that? I don't know. I, and I don't know what your life is like. I think you're more into the Hollywood thing. I, I, I don't know. No, I, you're probably not. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so I don't even live in LA. So Yeah. But, I but, but never saying, been, I've never been a company man. Ever. So I've never got on with the sort of heads of studios when I probably should have done. And I've, So you're not good at schmoozing? No, I, I, I don't like it. You know, I'll schmooze if I like the person. Right. But if it's for a job prospect, I don't care. You know, it's like, I'm not interested in that. I, I just don't care. And if you don't want to give it to me, then too bad. And, and I always think, and you probably feel the same way, that, you know, if it's down to you and somebody else and somebody else gets it, then I always go, wow, their loss. And, and you know, we have, we have to be, you know, sort of cast iron plated in our feelings because on, on our emotions, otherwise you would, um, re you know, rejection is the hardest thing. And especially when you're out there making such an ass of yourself and being laid so bare, you know, and um, and then to get you know continually rejected, it's the strangest business. I mean, it's it's sort of masochistic in many ways, as you know. You know, and listen, you're a fine actor. You'll have great periods, and you'll have really bad periods, like we all have. You know, and um, it's the ones that really can work through the low times that will 
end up having a long career. I remember working with John Gielgud, and I was in my 20s, and looking at John, this old man, this extraordinary man, and thinking, I want to be like him. God, I would love to be working in my 70s, my 80s. I mean, his agent, Duncan Heath, do you know Duncan Heath? Duncan Heath told me that um, John Gilbert called him when he was 93 and said, um, anything for me? And he went, uh, John, you're 93, darling. I, there's not much coming in. And he goes, oh, well, try and find me something. If you're an artist, you don't retire. There is no retiring. There well, I don't know about, um, I, I don't know whether we are artists. Do you really think we are? I think we're craftsmen. I would, uh, an artist, I think is. Um, you think it's a pretentious word? A little bit. Okay. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. We are creative types. We are craftsmen. And, and you know, we're very good craftsmen. And the more you do it, the better you become. Because you can only really, it's a 10,000 hours deal. Right, but isn't it semantics? Because why would a painter be an artist and an actor isn't an artist? So it kind of is semantics, but because that's- I'll tell you why. Because a painter, it's on his own. There's no one else. It's him, his brush, and his paints. With you and I, we are reliant all the time Mm. on other actors, on other technicians, on cameramen, and on mm. script. Yeah. And it's not our vision, it's a, and a painter's vision. It's not our vision, I mean, of course, we can, you know, we can um, slide in and out and do things that the writer never even thought of. Right. And use it as a stepping stone to do something, you know, that we want to do, but it's not Ah, vision, and that's why I okay, say. Okay, here's, here's a very pretentious question for you. For the past few years, I've, I've been doing stand-up, and I've been writing all my own material, and I do an hour set, and I travel all across the country. Yeah. So that's just me and a microphone. Well, good, good luck to you, because that, <laughs> that is uh, enormously brave. Um, I'd love to see you do it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I have tremendous respect for comedians. Yeah. And I don't care how good they are. Yeah. If you have the balls to get up and do that, yeah. I have tremendous respect for you for that. Yeah. And um, I wouldn't take the piss out of you for that at all. I, I would commend you tremendously. But I remember I'm a good friend of mine is Richard Lewis, the comedian. You know, yeah. And I love the guy and he's you know, a nice actor too. And, mm. But he told me this story when he first got The Tonight Show. And, you know, for a comedian, as you know, getting The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson was like a passport to stardom. And so he called his mother, who was so excited, and she went, oh, that's nice, dear, and who else is on? <laughs> that takes it all, it puts it all in perspective, yeah. does it not? Yeah. Who yeah. else is on? Yeah, that's that's. Mom, awesome. it's me. I, I, are you kidding? Yeah, we're we're looking for that approval. Don't go anywhere. How you live in J. Piven will be right back after we pay some bills. Here we are on the fiftieth anniversary of Clockwork Orange, and and what's fascinating is yesterday 
I'm buying socks. I have an, a, a, a very exciting life. And I'm buying socks. And, which are, uh, <laughs> which are missing at the moment. <laughs> and I look up on the wall and there is a picture of Clockwork Orange in the store. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, it's just fascinating. And every Halloween, you know, we're, we're dressing up as your character. Mm. 50 years later, does it blow your mind? Not, not so much now, no. I'm, it, it's, it's, you know, like having a mistress in a way who's very, uh, you know, I'm comfortable with it, you know, and, um, but it's exciting too. So that has always been there, you know, the, and, and it's exciting because this movie, you know, that I remember pretty well, I mean, even though it's 50 years, um, you know, that the young, every generation finds it as their own. And it becomes like the college kids, you know, have the poster up and the whole thing. And, and, and it, they are, you know, they find it like it's, well, I showed <laughs> for the 40th anniversary, we had a, a screening at, um, the Egyptian theater right. on Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. You know, and, and I did a Q and A afterwards. And after that, I was made a beeline for the men's room. I was dying for a pee. Yeah. And going down the hallway, a guy stopped me. He went, hey, oh my God. Hey, um, yeah, uh, clockwork, right? Uh, yeah. I went, yeah, I thought, yeah, I've just been out of that. I went, yeah, yeah. And he goes, which part? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But that's life right there. Isn't it? <laughs> but what, what blew my mind even more than that is because we see it from afar and we think Stanley Kubrick, the greatest you know, genius director of all time, mm. this mythic figure. And then to hear your take on it is w one of the most insane things ever that, you know, he basically asked you, what do you think about mm. the costume? Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. But you know, Stanley was not uh, a man who had, uh, you know, um, what do they call it? Like the cartoon thing of, of a book of all the shots. What do they call that? The shot list. Well, the but I mean a lookbook or anything. I mean, I mean the the he had. You know, a lot of people I've worked with have every single shot right. know, planned out. Stanley hadn't got a clue. Where, where I mean, he'd look at the rehearsal and then he'd decide uh, what he wanted to do. And he would not turn the camera unless he was totally felt there was magic. But and I mean magic. We, you know, would go on and rehearse and try other things and do this and that. And, you know, the whole thing of uh, singing in the rain is just true, is that we sat around the set for five days. The camera did not turn. He sent the crew out onto the lawn of this house they put a marquee up and sent the crew out there. So there was nobody in the house except the actors. And I literally was sitting on, you know, there was a two kind of um, level thing, the top level where the front door was, then these steps that went down, which is, was like the living area. And there was a big table there too. And um, so I was sitting on the steps that goes down to the lower level. and. 
just, you know, was, I was like kind of bored, but just hanging. I thought, I'll let him come up with something. And as he passed me on the steps, he just said, can you dance? And by this time I was so bored, I leapt up and I went, can I dance? I'm singing the rain, Fuck. just singing in the rain, boom, on the beats. Yeah. And I looked over at Stanley, he was laughing so hard, he was crying and he stuffed his handkerchief in his mouth and he, he, and I knew, I went, oh my God, we found it. And he literally got me, put me in his car, drove back to his house, which was like half an hour away, bought the rights, and we came back and did the whole thing. And it took a week to shoot. So you said you, you, he may not know what he wants, but he knows what he doesn't want. Right. That's it. So... And what's interesting about everything you just said is, unlike anyone else, he wouldn't progress unless it was something interesting. And so he literally shut you down for five days. When well, you can't he didn't do know that. He didn't know how long it was going to be, but nothing, no magic happened. And so there's no point in rolling the camera if it's not. But that right. literally doesn't happen anymore. No. It can't happen. And, and by the way, it wouldn't have happened to anyone else. I mean, don't forget. So how did he have that luxury? I'll tell you why. Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, Strange Love, 2001, Clockwork Orange. Well, That's why. Yeah. Because they were not only artistic masterpieces, if you like, but they were also popular, which was unheard of. Right. So, you could have one or the other, but not both. This is, we're talking Fellini territory, but for an American point of view with an American audience, of course, it made Fellini look like peanuts. And, and what you're getting to, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that whatever process we have, we have to condense it into the speed of light and be thrown onto a set, a lot of times last minute, mm -hmm. and make something happen magically. Yeah. Um, and there is no time to rehearse. There is no time no, to like, like do what he just did. And it's a shame because- But you know, I don't mind that. I, see, I embrace that. I think that's our strength, not our weakness. Because that, as you know, somewhere between those lines, that's where the real spontaneity and wonderful stuff happens. It's not on the book, not on the script. It's, um, for instance, uh, <clears throat> there's a section at the end when I'm in the hospital being fed the, by the Minister of the Interior. Yeah. Now this guy had this much dialogue. He had to wrap up the whole film. And um, I saw Stanley like, I knew, I knew him so well. He was fidgeting, so he was bored with this already. Right. So, um, and, and the actor was superb, you know, he was a really wonderful actor, but he was cutting. So to kind of hurry him up, I, as I'm sitting there, I just, I just went, and, and he had to, and I saw Stanley again, he, he had to turn away and I heard him snicker and so he did it again and every time you know to hurry him up and of course the whole scene became about that you know and, and anyway 
nobody's listening to all the wrap-up, you know, nobody cares by that point. But he's, I guess one of his brilliances is being able to recognize something oh, yeah. that is unique. Yeah. Like when he said to you, what do you think about the costume? And you're going, you, yeah. you tell no. me. And then he goes, what do you have in your car? Right? Just for no, of course. No, he said, what, um, he said to me, um, what do you think you should wear? <laughs> and I went, Stanley, um, it's a futuristic thing. I, he goes, what do you have? And I went, what do I have? I don't have anything. I only have jeans, T-shirt, and my cricket gear in the car. He went, put it on. So I put it on. He goes, what's this? I said, well, that's the protector. He goes, wear it on the outside. And that's basically the, the look. The look. The iconic look, which has been copied by everyone, Madonna and everyone, David Bowie, Jean-Paul Gaultier had a whole collection. But he's willing to say, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah. You got anything? And then what about the eyelash? The same thing. You know, I found that in Bieber, um, in the store, that was this kind of great little boutique store, you know, that sold mini skirts and the whole swinging London deal was, you know, Bieber was the center of it. And I was wandering around just looking at it and I came to the cash register and it had a yard of eyelash this long, all in one piece. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. I'll, I'll get it to show Stanley, he'll get a kick out of that. I'm go I was going out there that evening and I gave it to him and he, he looked at it and he went, he didn't really understand, <laughs> you know, he looked at it and he went, put it on. And I went, what? I, I don't know how to put it on. He was, well, there's probably glue in there, just put it on. So I cut it off. And I think one of his daughters, Vivian, helped me put it, put it on. And I put this thing on and he took a, a photograph. And then we did the other side and he took a photograph again. And the next day he called me and said, um, I'm looking at these photographs of the eyelash. I went, oh yeah. And he goes, uh, I like just the one eyelash because uh, you look at it and you think there's something off, but you can't figure out quite what it is. So it's pretty cool, you know. I mean, and that people are wearing, you know, for yeah. Halloween to this day, you yeah, know. Yeah, well, that's, of course. I mean, who would, who would have known that it was, you know, but when it came out, I, it, it's sort of tame now. When it came out, it was revolutionary because it was, A, you know, um, the liberal press particularly screamed about it being a fascist movie. And that, um, oh, there was a whole editorial in the New York Times about it. They're saying, basically, Kubrick's a fascist and, and McDowell is his henchman or some bullshit like that. And Stanley wrote a very good answer, um, <clears throat> which was pretty cool. But um, the well, truth is, Jeremy, as you know, look, what's the source material? Forget me, forget Stanley. The great book was written by Anthony Burgess. Yeah. And, you know, he gets lost in this, which is insane because actually, um, he, if, he's as much of a genius as Stanley in, in this instance. So I'm gonna butcher this, but a clockwork orange is something that's beautiful from, from the outside, but that's a puppet to the devil, or can be a puppet to the devil. Yeah. 
I mean, and so you're, <laughs> I mean, it's so deep and, and, and you're dismantling it by the end and that image where your eyes are pried open yeah. and you've got the drops in there um, and yeah. you're forced to view violence. Right. Un, until you're... Uh, there's, a, there's this treatment, it's aversion therapy. Yes. And, um, and it just so happens that the violence that they're showing has a musical score behind it. And the only redeeming feature of Alex is his love of Beethoven. And the classical music, you know, that, which is so important. So you're going to desensitize the... Alex until he then feels something. Right, but, but, but then <laughs> what happens is he, he, of course, starts to, you know, vomit and throw up on the violence, but also when he hears the Beethoven. So before the Beethoven, you know, there's a sense of glory to him, a sense of... Um, a, a bit like the Nazis, actually, with the Wagner, you know. Um, and, you know, you see these music, uh, these uh, newsreels of Nazi propaganda, um, you know, um, <clears throat> at the period of the Wagner is playing, and, and they're incredible, you know. Um, you kind of get with it. So it's very easy to see how... Um, seductive the whole thing is and uh, so it's and as the doctor said this is the punishment element perhaps is that he's going to be punished um, and it's just too bad that um, <clears throat> every time he hears music he's gonna uh, have the same aversion as he would to seeing violence or feeling violence and that, you know, that's, uh, that's a very cruel thing for the state to do, to take away somebody's freedom. It, that is really what the book is about, and the film. If you had to describe it in one sentence, it is about the freedom of man to choose, whether to be a moral man or an immoral one. Mm -hmm. There's that fork in the road and can go either way and you know <clears throat> and so, can a sociopath be transformed well <laughs> <laughs> he it doesn't quite make it in the movie you know because you know because of a political situation scandal they have to put him back to what he was and when he's in there you know and he does this and he goes i was cured all right that's the voiceover you know and, and um He's back to what he was. And actually, there's a sigh of relief from the audience. It, it's the most bizarre thing. And, you know, manipulation is staggering. And by the way, at the time, I don't think there was another movie that had at uh, its center, as leading character, um, a sort of evil or immoral person. There was not one movie. It just did not happen. Right. And I, I couldn't think of one. Not that I, it didn't matter to me whether there was one or not. I was, you know, you just do what you're given. And there, that's basically the book. I, the book was my Bible. The book actually became my script. 
And I go, Stanley, no, 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 the, you missed the point of this. And you go, what do you mean? I go, well, look, here. And he gave you, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. All right, um, yeah, well, let's do this. <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, of course. Thank you for doing this. It was amazing working with you again. This has been great. I, f I feel it was been, for me, a little cathartic. Yeah, it's nice to see the real Jeremy Piven. There you go. But, but uh, is it the real Jeremy Piven? It, it, not only is it, thank you, uh, the, the, this is the real me, but this form to me is a gift. Oh yeah, this is lovely. Uh, because, yeah, we don't have You get it. to meet uh, and get to really talk to somebody. You can't do this on a set because they're always saying, hurry up, yeah, do that. Or anywhere else, you have these tiny little clips and they're gonna pull it or there's a headline. And as you yeah. know from playing fictional characters, there's a perception of you. you right, know? exactly. And then there's a, there can be many false narratives. And you know, so for me, when this came up, I thought this is the greatest thing I've ever heard of because I, people can, I can hang out with people for an hour and talk to people that fascinate mm -hmm. me. So thank you, we're, we're in your suite so you're living the dream, like, you <laughs> oh, know? Oh yeah, this is such a dream. It's a suite with no windows. <laughs> That's, about right. That's like a fucking prison. Listen, you know, there are real prisons. This, my friend, is not a prison. Thank you. I think all of us, I know all of us have demons. And as you get older, you realize that, you know, sometimes, you're holding on to them and they feel comfortable or they can fuel you or inspire you or whatever you think. But the best thing to do is to let them go so you can make room for everything else in your life. And I hate to get so philosophical, but that's, that's what this sit down with Malcolm was all about. I had been holding on to it for a very long time because I was confused. Um, it, it, I was, I was, he made me incredibly angry. Um, and I felt that I didn't need that for my work. I was locked into that character. And um, I'm very proud to say that uh, I, I, you know, some people shit all over the acting profession and whatever. And I th think it's a noble profession. I grew up in it. Um, I take it very seriously. Uh, and I was ready to play and I, I died on my shield, uh, for every single take of everything I've ever done. And so I did felt that I didn't need, uh, this extra, um, confrontational, uh, distracting energy coming at me, uh, that was making me really, really angry. And I was, uh, it, it's something that, uh, happened on camera, off camera and, uh, continued on. And so I was confused by it and I held on to it and I never knew why until this podcast. <laughs> and selfishly, uh, I got to confront him and my feelings, uh, and it was very cathartic. And I'm here to tell you, man, that, um, we all just, I, I benefited and, and will continue to benefit from, from letting go and surrendering and not holding on to grudges, uh, demons, any of those things. And um, you never know where someone's coming from. Uh, and, you know, truly you can't take things personally because do it for yourself. 
you know, forgiveness is a powerful thing. And and do it for yourself, man. And so this was, it was very magical and cathartic. And I'm really glad I got to share it with you guys. Thank you. How You Live in Jay Piven is a cast original podcast in association with Common Enemy and Tenderfoot TV. Producer is Kyle Tequila. Theme song by Common. Executive producer for cast is John Spack. Executive producers for Tenderfoot TV are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Executive producers for Common Enemy are Jared Einson and Dave Osico. Catch all new episodes of How You Live in Jay Piven every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.